Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and fretting over impending matrescence. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. Today, you've got me, Rebecca Onion, a senior editor at Slate. So my daughter just had her sixth birthday. And I was thinking about how before I became a mother, um, I thought about it for about five years before going ahead and deciding to do it. And so in the course of that, I had a lot of conversations about it with friends who were parents, friends who weren't. I made a lot of Google documents. I wrote about my fears of division of, uh, around division of labor for Slate.com and other places. I made pro and con lists. I tried to talk to my husband about many, many possibilities, which he was mystified by, frankly. One time I remember I was talking to a friend who was turned out to be the first one in our friend group to have kids, a totally lovely woman, a great mom, whose son also kept me up all night at one tightly packed house party, super overstimulated, crying about wanting iPad at like two in the morning. He is now a preteen and he's absolutely wonderful. Anyway, I ranted to this friend about all the things that I love doing that I worried becoming a mom would take away from me. At that time, those things were like rock climbing, a lot of yoga, reading, watching very bloody TV that was not child-friendly in any way, shape, or form. And my sweet friend looked at me after I made this rant with her sweet eyes and said, you may lose all those things, but what about all the things you'll gain? I remember at the time I thought, I think that's profound, but I don't, I don't, I can't quite realize it. The vibe of that moment came back to me when I read NPR political reporter Danielle Kurtzleben's recent Substack entry, A Professional Lady Correspondent Stares Down Motherhood. I'm so glad to have Danielle here to talk through all the worries she's having about becoming a mom, what she describes so comprehensively and gorgeously in this edition of her newsletter. And when we return, we'll get right into it. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and you want to hear more, please subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, you can check out our other episodes, too. Recently, we've been talking about why yoga is so expensive, a topic dear to my heart, if men should be writing women characters, and menopause. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Danielle Kurtzleben, welcome to The Waves. Thank you. All right. So my first question is uh, maybe a little personal, but I think given what we're going to talk about today, I think I got I to ask for context. When is this baby coming and where are you now in the process of baby preparation? Uh, it's very close. Uh, theoretically, the due date is sometime in early March. And so I am uh, just past the 35-week mark as we are recording right now. Uh, so... Real close and just in the home stretch of making a lot of decisions. Uh, I mean, there's a logistic side and the emotional side. And so uh, my partner and I, he, he is a lovely man named Neil. We've taken some classes, you know, this thing called baby boot camp that we did last weekend, which is way less intimidating than it sounded. We also took a breastfeeding class uh, not long ago. And honestly, 
all of that made a lot more room for me to feel emotionally ready because otherwise I had just been like, checklist, checklist, checklist. What can we get done? How much more do we have to do? What are we missing? And now that I feel like, A, I'm not going to totally fail at this, and B, other people are equally clueless, which is honestly one of the biggest, the best parts of these classes is realizing that a lot of people have the same questions as you do. Um, that has made a lot more room for me to feel excited instead of terrified or just numb. Okay, so in this Substack, in this newsletter entry, um, you describe worries that are plaguing you or that were at the time. Um, and I found it interesting. It's a real mix. I recognize the mix very well. You've got some worries that are based on data, like about uh, gender gaps in pay and what happens to women in cis hetero partnerships after they have babies in terms of the workplace. And then you have some that feel like they're more based on vibes, like just sort of stuff you hear from parents of under fives about what what it's like, which is to me is the equivalent of like that night that my friend's toddler screamed all night (laughs) that that probably put me off of having a child for two extra years. Which of these kinds of like pieces of evidence that you're using to sort of construct what you're imagining life might be like causes you more stress or or how does the different kinds of evidence impact you differently? I think I would say both, but the more I think about it, I wonder if the data side impacts me more because I, just a bit of background, a lot of my career in journalism was in economics and business, and I covered a lot, lot of gender wage gap, uh, all sorts of wage gaps, quite honestly, gender, racial, et cetera, et cetera, in workplaces, but just the way that different people get treated in different workplaces and different industries, different uh, sectors, all of that. And then as a political reporter, I've reported quite a bit on how politicians talk about different industries, how female politicians get treated versus male politicians, et cetera. Um, so I feel like I have been marinating in oh, the world is a profoundly sexist, unfair place throughout my career, as well as my childhood, which we can get into later. And There's so much there. And so I think with that as a very firm foundation of knowledge for me, looking at having a kid, it just really freaked me out. Because one thing we do know about the gender wage gap is that it is heavily, heavily built on motherhood. It is heavily caused by motherhood, I should say. And so I just thought to myself, wow, having a kid really holds women back. And I mean, you, you've you been in plenty of workplaces, I imagine. I have, and I've seen plenty of workplaces that do not intend to be sexist, but are. And we know that in a lot of places, however well-intentioned, women are promoted based on what they've done in the past, Men are promoted based on more based on their potential, or, or at the very least, it seems like their potential is more readily seen by others, uh, including higher ups. And so I just feared, like, my God, how much is a kid going to exacerbate this? And my career, my career is clearly deeply important to me. It's something that I've worked incredibly hard to get to. So yes, there's all of that. But then, on the vibe side, I. I have trouble deciding whether this is a function of me, of what my brain filters out and what I hear and what parents are saying. But it it did strike me that a lot of parents of quite young children come at you with a fair amount of negativity about, about parenting. And that's, I have never been a parent of a small child. 
it looks really, really hard. And so I do not doubt it and I'm not slamming them. But I, it, it's something that you don't hear in any other area of life. With a kid, yes, you get congratulations, but you also get, oh, you're never going to sleep. A lot of that just really made me wonder, like, oh, God, how am I cut out for this? I'm, uh, it's possible I'm not. I don't know. And also that, like, I feel like there's so much I could say on this podcast that is just going to get me slammed or canceled or whatever. But just like, I don't want to become a person who complains about my kids. I really don't. Um, Reaches out for help, yes. But like, I, I want this little dude to be a source of joy in my life. And I hope that he is, uh, despite whatever difficulties we have. You know, especially in the post-pandemic or whatever, the, the pandemic, the ongoing pandemic situation that we're in, there has been like an exacerbation of this sort of uh, negativity. Deciding whether or not to have a kid in the middle of that, like, uh, it seems like a whole new level. Because I mean, I you know, way back as far back as uh, 2013 or 14, my ex-colleague Ruth Graham, who used to write, write for us at Slate, um, wrote a piece that was basically like, I'm tired of like reading negativity online from parents, like it makes me never want to have a child. And then, you know, she went ahead and had a child and, you know, whatever, has all the like sort of mixed experiences, mostly joyful. But so that that was the situation already back then. And then during the pandemic, the negativity has had like an added urgency and like a political urgency to it, like a feeling like, not like idle complaining, but more like we just we have to figure out new ways to convey how overworked we are and overextended. Um, and that and I think that that has brought the discourse around it to a new height. This is not merely me saying like, God, parents complain too much, because if there's one thing, the pandemic, like as if I we all of us didn't already know it, made it very clear that, no, it's not just there's a lot of negativity around parenting, which you may or may not disagree with, but wow, are we not terribly supportive of parents as a society, particularly moms. There's a, there's a lot to worry about, you know? Another point I feel like is really hard to realize until you're actually doing it is that there are things that people complain about constantly that don't happen. And then the person that they don't happen to just doesn't say like, like, I feel like I'm going to curse myself by saying this. But you know, we just have never really had a lot of sleep issues. And I'm I don't say that, though. You know what I mean? No one wants to be the person who says that because then you're like the mom who says, wow, it's just surprising to me how many vegetables my child likes. <laughs> Like negativity around parenting is much more like common currency, I feel like, than like the kind of blissed out, like maybe online with like influencers or something. That's like the sort of blissed out attitude is like more common. Um, But like in day to day life, when you're talking to other parents, negativity is like much more the vibe. But I wanted to know whether there's there have been other experiences in your life, because I think because I think about it and I'm like, your your life is going to change no matter what, like you know, whether or not you decide to have a child, like you'll, someone might get sick or like someone might get in an accident or your parent might, you know, whatever, things change in like ways that aren't always predictable and whatever. And I think part of the thing about being like a mid thirties person, which I was when I was having this like experience is you think to yourself, well, if I don't have a child, things will just continue on hunky dory. (laughs) And like, I'll continue to, you know, have this great group of friends that I go see movies with and go on vacation and and I'll just do that until like the end of my career and then I'll retire or whatever. But you know, aging changes people and things change and you know, the world changes <laughs> no matter what. But if you have the privilege to have the choice about becoming a parent, it's a huge change, the choice for which you have made. And so I wonder whether there's other sort of 
um, like areas of your life where you've sort of like experienced this worry or whether this is this sort of pre pre birth worry is particular to parenting. I have done this with other life choices, but to a much smaller degree. This is probably going to be revealing of all sorts of my weird psychological peccadilloes more than more than revealing about motherhood in general. So I just got I got married in late 2021. So we got married and quite quickly got pregnant, which look, total blessing. I totally recognize that. Um, But I I had been single for so long that I had just started to identify myself as, oh, I am a single person. That is who I am. And when I started thinking of myself as a married person, uh, the the word wife in particular, I was like, God, what does that mean? Am I a wife? Am I? <laughs> what, what? How will that change me? And like, there, logically, like, yes, you can do it however the hell you want. It's fine. And it did cause me to think a lot about, wow, how much does this person impact my life? How much, you know, in good ways, like I travel more now than I used to, but also I listen to some music that he likes. And I I definitely am very resistant to the idea of, oh, am I doing this because a man got me to do it? Am I doing this because, like, under the influence of someone else? You know, there's that whole thing of, I don't know about you, you know, when you're in college or high school and you sit around watching your boyfriend play video games because I just don't want to do that. <laughs> I didn't want to do that on a grand scale. You know, like, I'm not enjoying this, but I'm not paying attention to the fact that I'm not enjoying this. To a lesser degree, I kind of did this with political reporting. Like, I never wanted to be a political reporter. But then, I mean, the job opportunity opened up and I was I was like, I'm, I'm not not going to work at NPR. And so... But I thought, like, am I a political reporter? They always seemed like so hardcore and get up and go and full of jargon. And I was like, that's not me at all. And so um, it turns out I love it. So, I mean, yes, I have done this in other areas of life and they have turned out fine. I feel like the video game example is a good one. I just don't want to I just don't want my life consumed by a thing that I don't want to consume it. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, that makes perfect sense. And I feel like I always kind of joke or whatever. I don't know if it's really a joke. It's kind of grim that the probably the experience of babysitting as an early teenager put me off of parenting for like a decade. I mean, you know, I had some experiences where I was being like asked to take care of a family of three kids for $2 an hour. You know, this is like, you know, New Hampshire in the early 1990s or whatever. (laughs) What bothered me the most about it was feeling like I couldn't wait for time to pass and just being like, oh, I just need to kill this time. Like, I just need to get to the point on the clock where I can go home and like be by myself. Like, I just need to be done. And I thought for a long time, that's what parenting is going to be like. The time that is precious to me will then become something to be abhorred, Um, which I think some people do experience it that way. And there are some times where it can be that way. But when you're a parent, you're a lot more in control of like (laughs) what choices you're making, like like how you're arranging your days with the with the little guy. But anyway, yeah, but I recognize that feeling of being like, I just don't want to have no choice over how things are going to be like to even sit and think about one thing to like sit and, you know, write another essay or uh, go to a movie or 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 sit and talk to my husband about God knows what. But and instead, you know, we're 
pl- meal planning and uh, looking at Junior's calendar and figuring out, like, God, recently I saw a um, just a wave of Twitter stuff about people, parents fretting about summer camp sign up. And I was like, oh, my God, this sounds cutthroat. <laughs> and, like, look, I will I will do my damnedest to get the little guy into summer camp. It's, it's not that I'm not going to, but like, oh, this sounds this sounds like so much, so much more than I realized it was going to be. We're going to take a break here. But if you want to hear more from Danielle and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment, where today we're going to talk about Danielle's reporting on the fall of Roe while pregnant and how that's affected her experience. Please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content for shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Welcome back to The Waves. 
I really want to talk about cool and not cool moms <laughs> and whether this whether being a mom is inherently uncool. Okay, so I I sense that this part of your newsletter may have been the part where you sort of wrote sort of fearing pushback. And I wonder if you actually got pushback a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> about sort of worrying about your thoughts and your like mental life being taken over by motherhood. And you actually mentioned the book Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg, which is very interesting to hear about because I read that book. But the concept that moms should sort of emphasize like basically refuse to give up ground in their careers by whatever means necessary. It feels a little 2010s now, maybe very pre-COVID. <laughs> and not just because Sheryl Sandberg has kind of like lost her shine a little bit. I feel like the the appetite for advice from billionaire ladies on like how to lean in is like a little bit lower now than it, than it might have been before. I, I sort of feel like it's like a little bit hustle culture. There's sort of like not really a love for that idea anymore, but you you seem to have been inspired by it. And I'm curious about sort of the relationship in your mind between what your relationship to your job might be once you have the baby and remaining cool, whatever you define that as. It's not that I have a hard and fast equation of like, if you're if you're not doing everything you possibly can at your job, you're not cool. Like that that's the definition of a cool, like, by God, no. If you're talking nonstop, thinking nonstop about anything, you need to just take take a chill pill. It's it's not about necessarily about, yes, give no ground at your job for me. It's more like maintaining your individuality um, to some degree. And I, I and this is something that I know there's plenty of people who do not identify with their career as much as I do. And when I have talked to other moms about this, moms who do not identify with their jobs the way that I do, they, they still have been like, oh, yeah, but I... I know of one mom who, I guess, before she had kids, worried, am I going to be funny after I have a kid? There, There's any number of things. Am I, or like you were saying, am I still going to be able to rock climb or do yoga? I mean, I used to do a lot of long distance running. And like, you know, if you if I have to give that up entirely, I mean, I guess my joints are getting old. But I mean, still, it's like, oh, God, am, who am I if I'm not doing that? Who like just... It, it it feels like this could very much create an existential crisis, and I I wonder if mom stuff could rush into whatever holes there are, I guess, and and take over. So I feel like there's a lot of internalized misogyny here that we can get to. But I mean, as far as lean in, I do want to yeah, say defend this. lean in. I want to hear your defense. Okay, <laughs> in God, I I feel like such a horrible boober gen xer <laughs> second wave buzzkill sellout but okay just i have been rereading that lately independent of this essay um because it's the 10th anniversary and i've been thinking maybe i'd like to write something about this and when i re i did read it when it first came out in 2013 when i was far removed from marriage or kids and it blew my little mind you know <laughs> like oh my god they, they, wow, there there are so many ways to that I'm sabotaging myself in the workplace, that all of us women are. There are so many ways that bosses are being unfair to you that they don't realize and you don't realize. And I will say this. There are a million caveats. Like, first of all, Lean In focuses so heavily on the internal as opposed to the systemic. So it is quite possible, even likely, to read that book and go, 
wow, the reason I don't have the job I want is me, as opposed to, no, the reason you don't have the job you want is because of, like, sexism and just boys clubs and all sorts of, and lack of child care and all sorts of stuff. So th- that is all true. I do think it is very easy to discount that book at this point when so many of the lessons of it really uh, are kind of in the water. Yes, sit at the table. Yes, maybe stop apologizing so much. These are things that I sense that younger women now understand maybe more innately than I did when I was younger, that it is fine to be a little more assertive that, yes, you can negotiate, you can ask for what you want, and also especially uh, get an equal partner because that seems so just fundamental. If you're a partnered mom, and you don't have to be, but I mean, if you have good help, then by God, of course, stuff is easier. So I think that those things are are just so fundamental to how a lot of working women think now that, yeah, I mean, look, the book has a million problems. It ignores class. It ignores race. It, igno- it, it ignores a lot. Like, tr- Trust trust me, I am not saying this is the best book in the world, but, but there's still so many things in it that, that still bear out today. What I've sort of found a little bit thinking back on Lean In 10 years out is like, I'm like, what if you just don't want to work that much? What if you want, uh, instead of your like mind to be 70% occupied by work, your mind to be 50% occupied by work and still be able to have like a happy financial life, basically. Like I feel like the lean in mode of operation, what I worry about a little bit is that kind of your mind can be bright and vivid post maternity (laughs) in various ways. But if you don't want to have to apply all of that to your work, I don't know. I, I don't know. How will you feel if you wake up in uh, two years and think to yourself, yeah, I, I don't want to work that much. I'll be surprised, but uh, but yeah, but, I know. <laughs> but I'll be I mean, look, we're getting kind of to the crux of it because the question is whether whether you, I, whoever has the choice of having the mental balance that they want to an extent. Clearly, I, you, no one's going to ignore their child <laughs> entirely. That's not that is certainly not what I they won't let like, you. They right. Well, you. of course. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. But we have never lived in a world where it has been the norm or even terribly acceptable. Like it's still considered groundbreaking for the man to be the primary parent. Right. And so you hear from all these moms who say that, of course, I'm defaulting here to heterosexual relationships, I realize. But moms who say that the daycare, the school calls them for everything as opposed to the dad. Classic like problem. that. Yes, of course it is. And it sucks. It really sucks. And as long as we live in that world, that's that strikes me as a sort of shorthand for women are expected, understood to take on more of the parenting load, to have more of their brains and lives occupied by parenting. And so, yes, if I wake up a couple years after having the little dude and, and I'm like, you know, I just want a mom more. Okay. But the fact that this has been imposed, that the brunt of this has been imposed on women so long leads me to think that this is, it is not necessarily a biological imperative that women are taking on the majority of parenting. It's that some choose it and that is great and that is wonderful. And some also just have it kind of pushed on them. And I have seen it. We've all seen it. And it may be true of many of our moms and grandmothers, for example. And I, it's just something that I want to resist unless I really want it. 
But you know what? It also goes back to the question of like, whether it's data that's making you afraid or vibes or your own actual situation. Do you know? Because it sounds like your partner's good. Oh, yeah, he's great. Yeah, you hope you picked the you hope you picked one who will like help you (laughs) figure out how to have what you want or be happy. I've thought about how I grew up a lot as a as a part of this conversation, because I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere in Iowa, right? And it was a place where it was very, it was abundantly clear that the world revolved around men, right? Like, I didn't know a single woman who was running a farm. It was all men. And then, like, farmers' wives who just did work, but kind of quietly (laughs) helped things run. It meant that the local economies revolved around men. It meant that households revolved around men. Women worked. Women actually got the health insurance for their families and kept things afloat. But the very land was structured around men's work. The towns were. And also, like, relatively conservative area. The pastors were mostly men. The uh, Women were often, you know, not exclusively, but often, you know, nurses and teachers and all of that. And it clearly made me very sensitive to... <laughs> yeah. To the fact that there are certain things that that men just kind of default to getting to be important and to like what they want to do is is kind of what goes. And to, I want to be clear, my parent, my dad is a lovely, uh, fair thinking man who raised three very feminist daughters. So, you know, I, but I just think that. I've talked to my sisters a lot about this as well. It is a way of growing up when you are when you grow up in a pretty man-centric place. It makes you really understand and really see it when the when the rest of the world does that. And the flip side, and I should acknowledge this here, is that I fully fully understand that this also may mean I have a lot of internalized misogyny about women's work, about momming, about is it inherently silly or unimportant to talk about your kids. Like uh, intellectually I know it's not, but I'm I'm positive I have some mental hurdles to get over on that. And I'm not sure how how exactly I'll do it. I really want to talk to you about this because I used to um study like the history of childhood, childhood studies as an academic. And then after I became a parent, I started occasionally writing, usually for slate, about different things that arose in my child's and my life and kind of like you know, delving into it sociologically, psychologically, developmentally, historically, and sort of just finding ways to be fascinated. And I sort of, I hope that happens to you. Like, I think the kinds of conversations that you overhear or participate in, well, I I will say also, they're still sometimes boring when you're a parent, like, don't get me wrong. (laughs) But I think that those conversations and the conversations you overhear before you're a parent about parenting and about children are like pretty superficial usually or like pretty logistical like kind of day to day and then underneath it there's this whole kind of weird world about like developing brains and if you're interested in politics like you know there's things that you could start reporting on that you might find stuff that's intellectually interesting about childhood that you don't know about now that's my my moment of cheer for you I think you're right I first of all have had to like sit and have the very simple duh thought of like that there's a reason people do this there's not mass delusion Danielle so people enjoy this it's fine calm down and a, a thing that I said in my essay also is that especially older parents of grown or near grown kids just are are the biggest cheerleaders like there are some older uh, reporters at NPR who I told them and they're like oh 
oh God, we're we're so happy for you. It's the one thing in life that isn't overhyped. And like, I what what I when I need a a boost, <laughs> they're the ones who I talk to. But no, I mean, I think. It's it's again. I feel like I I feel like a little bit of a broken record. But there, there's so much here that's about choice, right? Like, what do I do? I get to pick what I think about or not. You know, I am positive that watching someone learn how to read will be fascinating and joyful and just so proud and wonder. So many feelings. Like I'm I'm positive that will be a thing. I fully understand that there are people who are naturally drawn to and more interested in kids and are better with kids than I am because I'm I'm awkward and weird and like I I I get I get that entirely. I and it, and part of it is it really is like it, also I'm going to have to get over myself a little bit. I I do <laughs> I, I do understand this. Uh, but I I just don't know I don't know how it'll happen, but look, it's happened in other areas of my life. I I am married and I did not turn into a husband lady, you know. I I'm, I'm I'm not a trad wife, it turns out, and I I became a political reporter, and it turns out I am still me. So, I mean, as one of my friends put it to me, like, you know, Danielle, you're... parenting is not a personality transplant. And, like, that's that's a very good point. It's just going to be all about finding the way to do parenting that my partner and I do it. I'm just not sure what that's going to look like. It's just going to look very different from how either of us gr- grew up. Yeah, I always think about it as like, you're going to have like a new powerful force in your life, and they're going to have a personality. And they'll change you, but you'll change them. And then the triangle of you will like change each other in different ways. The best things in my life, I imagine this is true for a lot of people, are the things that you're not sure about when you make the decision. Like I, you you don't, you never know if this relationship is going to work. You never know if this job, if you're going to like this job. And sometimes you get a job or you date a person that turns out you <laughs> that is horrible for you, um, but often it turns out just fine. And so I, I, God willing, that having a kid will turn out just fine. Danielle, thank you so much for coming on the show and being willing to speak so openly about your fears and worries. And I feel like everything's going to be great for you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you for reassuring me. I I really appreciate it. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. And The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place. Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member. Since you're a member, you get this weekly segment. And today, Danielle and I are going to talk about Danielle's reporting on the fall of Roe while pregnant. Danielle, let's start with a summary of the reporting that you did. You initially were going to go to Ukraine and report on the war. Is that right? Yeah, I uh, had volunteered because that's just how going to Ukraine was working at NPR right at the start. Just, oh, God, who who's covering this? Whoever can you know, and is willing, then by by God, you know, get out there. So I put up my hand. And then when I realized I was pregnant, I, it it was sort of two things happened at once because Roe fell, if I'm 
getting the timing right. Roe fell just before I found out I was pregnant. So first of all, Roe had happened, and I thought like, well, I'm definitely reporting on this, but I can do both. I I can do everything. <laughs> and then I and then I found out I was pregnant, and I went, oh well, I this this cast things in a new light. I had already had like a, some deep conversations with my partner about you know, the about potential danger I would be in. And then suddenly having a new small organism inside me that I would I could be putting in danger as well. That, you know, that changed things. And so I pulled out. But anyway, it, it turns out I was spending, I spent most of 2022 going to places like Kansas and uh, all sorts of other places with uh, fights over abortion rights and covering that. And that was that was my beat anyway. So, I mean, I was I was still <laughs> pretty busy and doing a lot of work. First of all, how did you plan for that? Like what like uh, what kinds of contingency plans did you put in place? Um, and second of all, how, if you want to say a little bit more about how your reporting on that was sort of like affected by your pregnancy. I'm curious about it. So as far as contingency plans, I mean, that's um, it, it was tough. I mean, a, a, a lot of it was prey. That was just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to slate.com slash the waves plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash the waves plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.